Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Good we're all together on this uh, is it fall yet? It, it's still, <laughs> I keep feeling like summer. I'm not complaining, though, that's for sure. I wanted to say, uh, we're going to get into the passage in just a minute, but before we do, I just wanted to, uh, to say thank you to you as a church for welcoming our guest last week. Uh, Jim Halstead was with us and shared uh, about evangelism, about personal evangelism, go into that go-and-tell weekend we'd been talking about for several weeks. Uh, and he just remarked to me how, how welcomed he felt, and he really appreciated our generosity. Thank you to everyone who who uh, gave to that, that love offering that was, that was out. I was very, very, very generous and uh, was proud of us as a church, both in our response to him and as well as to the teaching. I was meditating on, just kind of thinking through what I thought was, my, you know, if I had to identify one takeaway for myself, and, and maybe it's for some of you would identify with it too, is, is just that challenge to be praying. You know, a lot of times we think about sharing our faith with other people and we immediately go to the, what will I say? Or how will I say it? Or what if I don't know the right verses? Or... I don't explain it clearly, uh, and all that's important. That's why we would do something like that is to offer training, but um, that, that challenge to just be praying for, for lost people by name, specific people. Um, if, a lot of times we don't share our faith because we're not especially motivated, and uh, prayer is, is, uh, comes in with that for sure, right? You're not going to share with someone if you don't care for someone, and that starts with praying. So I was challenged by that, and I hope you were too. Uh, have that list. He challenged us to have, have a list of at least five people, specific people, families, family members, neighbors, um, colleagues at work, whoever it might be, uh, peers at school if you're a student, uh, to be praying for those people. I, I'm going to challenge myself, and I challenge you to be, to be doing the same. Uh, we also do have, uh, you might remember we talked about some small groups that we're going to be starting up specifically to follow up on that material. Uh, it's a seven-week small group that Jim himself wrote the material for, and we actually have two groups that are, are launching. One's launching tomorrow evening, um, a Monday, and then we have the other one is, is going to be a Sunday evening group, and that one is, starts next Sunday. So if you're interested, I, my, my understanding is there's like six to eight people involved in each of those groups. If you'd like to still get be part of that, it's not too late. So you could talk to Paul Eichel or to Sonia Smith. I'm not sure if Sonia's here today, but oh yeah, Sonia's not here today, but you, uh, I'll help you find her if you don't know who she is. And uh, those, they're, each of them is leading one of those groups. So we could, uh, we could connect you with that if Monday or Sunday works well for you. So, so please do uh, consider that as well. Uh, let's pray as we get into this morning's passage. Let's ask for the Lord's help. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for, uh, for giving, giving us uh, yourself. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus. We thank you that we get to gather as the church, the people of God, to worship, to fellowship, to learn. This morning we get to share around your table together, Lord. Such an apt Sunday to do that. And we just give you praise for all of that. I want to invite you now, Lord, to be our teacher. Uh, would you speak through me and all of my, my humanness? Uh, get past me, Lord, by your Spirit to speak to us. Uh, help us to understand with our minds and to apply with our hearts. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Not even a typhoon was going to stop them from getting married. Uh, that's what a young couple in the Philippines decided just this past summer. It was, uh, the woman's name was Diane, Diane uh, Victoriano, and her uh, fiancé, Paul Padillo. 
uh, Paul and Diane were set to be married on July 30th, and everything was ready, all the arrangements and the cathedral and all the stuff was ready to go. There was just one problem. Uh, a typhoon, you know, the Pacific Ocean's version of a hurricane, hit their city the same day as their wedding. A lot of uh, people, their family, their guests assumed they would postpone because of the weather, but they decided that to go ahead. They were going to have the wedding anyway, uh, despite the fact that there was standing water in the church. Uh, that's what ended up happening here. I have a picture of the bride coming down the aisle. I don't know how clear you can tell, but she's walking. When she came down the aisle, she waded through about three inches of water. Uh, her dress became soaked. Uh, the groom was in flip-flops, the story I read said. Uh, but, but they didn't care. Uh, they were determined not to let a storm, not even a typhoon, uh, keep them from getting married. We need to have that same determination, that same mindset when it comes to following Jesus. That's the point of this morning's text. Uh, no matter what challenges we face, God calls us to persevere. He wants us to persevere in our faith. Uh, we are moving now into the next section of the book of Hebrews. So if you're visiting with us today, this is not a random selection of a text. We've been studying through Hebrews uh, for, uh, through this year. We've broken it into two pieces. And uh, this morning, as we continue in our study through Hebrews, we're moving into what is really a new section. And in many ways, except for the conclusion, it's kind of the last major section of the book. Uh, two weeks ago, last week we had a guest speaker, two weeks ago we finished what is the major theological portion of the letter. And that's not to say there's not more theology ahead of us, but, but really the main theological portion of the letter uh, runs from chapter 7 through to the middle of chapter 10. And we covered that over the course of five weeks. So we took five weeks, we could have spent a lot more time, but, but that felt like a good way to give us an overview of those, five, those, those three and a half chapters. And uh, in that section, chapters 7 through 10, we, we focused on the superior ministry of Jesus. That, that's, that's what that was all about. Jesus is better in every way, and because he's better in every way, he is worth any sacrifice, right? No matter what the costs of following Jesus may be, Jesus is worth it. That's the point of that, that section, which leads right into today's passage, which kind of launches off of that. Because having said all of that about the worthiness and the superiority of Jesus, now the author challenges us directly. And, and we've been kind of feeling the challenge as we go, just so we feel it every week. But really, he is, this is where he really begins to, to zero in on this idea of perseverance persevere in your faith. That's because of all we've just learned about Jesus, God calls us to continue. He calls us to press on in him. And so um, that's what we're going to look at today. We're actually going to do the longer section. I asked our reader to just do the first piece of it, but I'm actually going to cover the rest of the chapter this morning. So our text is verses 19 through 39. And I want to break it into three parts. We're going to talk about, and if you'd like to look at the outline and the bulletin, that this is printed for you there. Uh, we're going to talk about the reason for persevering. And that's pretty short, actually, because it's what we've been talking about for the last five weeks. So we'll talk about the reason. The author just kind of recaps for us. Then we're going to look at our response. So we'll talk about the response of perseverance, what it looks like. And he's going to give us two angles on that. And then we'll finish by talking about resources. There's two uh, resources that we have in this text, two, two things that help us persevere when we talk about persevering in our faith. So our reason, our response, and our resources for perseverance. That's today's uh, agenda. So let's, let's get into the text. So we'll start with the reason. And the reason, quite simply, is that we have Jesus. 
So why should we persevere in our faith? We should persevere in our faith because of Jesus. We have him. That's what we're reminded of in verses 19 through 21. And we heard it a minute ago, but I'm going to read it again. And it's going to be a little awkward because I'm going to start in the middle of, I'm going to stop in the middle of a sentence. He says, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Stop there for now. So verse 19 starts with this word, therefore, and it's a key in this instance because it marks a major transition. Like I said a minute ago, it's a major transition from the section we just finished, uh, three and a half chapters uh, of all this wonderful stuff God has done for us in Jesus and who Jesus is. And now the author says, verse 19, given all of that, here's what we're going to do with it. All right, here's what we're going to do. And so there's a verbal idea that goes with therefore, right? So therefore, do this, but the verb doesn't come until verse 22, right? So we'll get to the verb in a minute. Put a, you know, hold on, we'll get there in a couple minutes. But before he tells us what to do with all this, he just recaps it for us. And that's how I think we should look at verses 19, uh, 19 20, 21. There's, there isn't really any new material there. That's a three-verse summary of verses 7, uh, excuse me, chapters 7 through 10. Uh, and so what did we learn in all those chapters? Just to recap, well, we learned that we can come to God, right? We can enter the holy places, he says in verse 19. Uh, and all of this is through Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom we enter the holy places. Uh, he offered himself for us on the cross. He's that perfect sacrifice. That's verse 19. Uh, he's the new and living way because of that. Verse 20, that's the language. How, how do we approach God? We approach God through Jesus. He's the way. Uh, John 14, 6, I'm the way, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, author of Hebrews heartily agrees. Uh, he opened this way through the curtain. So the author brings in some of that tabernacle language we looked at back in chapter 8. Um, or actually, it's chapter 9. Chapter 8 was the covenant. Uh, and so Jesus, you know, what curtain is he talking about? He's talking about the curtain that separated the holiest place from the outer rooms. No one could go into that holiest place where God was. But now Jesus has opened the curtain. In fact, if you read, you read the Gospels, Matthew and Mark both say he tore the curtain. Right, so, so Jesus is the way through the curtain, and, and then he specifies that it's his own body. He did this through his flesh, right? So this way we don't get disconnected from the crucifixion, which is kind of the focus in all, so much of Hebrews. And so it's his body, his body, and what was done to his body. We'll remember it uh, at the table later in the service. It was what was done to his body. That's how we are now able to approach God. And then he connects that last thing he says there in verse 21 is that idea of the priest. He does all that because he's the priest. And not just any priest, but the great priest of the great priesthood, the greatest priest of the greatest priesthood. So why do we persevere? Where does our perseverance start? When we talk about persevering in, in our faith in Jesus Christ, it starts with this simple fact that we have him. We have that Jesus, that Jesus who did all of that for us. Uh, it has been said, this isn't original with me, it's been said that uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Have you ever heard anybody say that? It's kind of become sort of a thing. I think one cool preacher said it, and then all the other not, not as cool preachers picked it up. And, and then eventually you got guys like me saying it, right? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I think the author of Hebrews would heartily agree with that sentiment. Jesus plus nothing does equal everything, because that's so much of what he's been telling us. If we have Jesus, we have all that we need. We have all that we need. And so before I go on to the next point, I got to stop at this point and ask, and I, I feel like I've asked this before, but we got to ask it again. Do you have Jesus? 
Do you have Jesus? That's what verses 19, 20, and 21 make us do. Do I have Jesus? When somebody says Jesus plus nothing equals everything, how do you react? Right? What happens on the inside? Is, is there a sense of affirmation in your soul? Do you hear those words and you go, yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm going through this awful thing right now, but yes, that's true. That's true. Or is there instead a sense of resistance? I don't know if that's true. I'm not sure. I hear somebody say that, and I'm not quite so, so sure I, I agree. And, and this is a really important matter. You say, why are you talking about that? I'm talking about it because it's a really important question. Uh, nothing else I'm going to say this morning is going to make any sense uh, until we answer this one. Because why would somebody persevere in something they weren't convinced was true? Why, why would we do that? Right? We, why would, why would, what would the motivation be for pressing on in Jesus? And so, and so we all have to answer this question. Do I, do I value Jesus more than I value my reputation in the eyes of the world? Or do I value Jesus more than a, I value a secure and comfortable retirement? Do I value Jesus more than sexual pleasure? Do I value Jesus more than wealth or fame or, or whatever else the world might offer in exchange for him? Do I value him? more than anything else. That's one of the things this author's really been pressing us on. And so where does it start? It starts here. Are, are we persevere uh, in our faith because we understand that we have Jesus and we believe that having Jesus is more than enough. So that's the, the reason. Now let's look at the response. Let's follow up on the verbal idea here. And, and that's what we get in verses Uh, 22 through 31. The author's going to give us actually two. So if you have the scripture open in front of you, whether on an app or in your Bible, if you look at verses 22 through uh, 31, so it's kind of a bigger sort of a section. So um, whenever we do bigger sections like this, I can't answer every single question that might come up in a text. If you have a question, I'd love to chat with you afterwards. But I want to give an overview of those verses, 21 through 31. And as we go through them, you'll see there's two responses here, two ways like when we talk about persevering, you say, well, what do you mean? What are we talking about when we talk about persevering? Well, we're talking about these two, two manifestations, and one's positive and one's negative. So one is something we should do, and one is something we shouldn't do. So the one we should do is, is the first one. It's verses 22 through 25. So I'll, I'll read it again. Uh, so we, we, heard, we, we heard it before. Therefore, since we have all this, 19 through 21, Therefore, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this part of the passage, this part of the passage uh, gives us the, the positive response. Let me move my slides along here. The positive so- side, which is to press on. Press on. And he doesn't use that word. That's my word to summarize the three verbal ideas he gives us here. So we have three verbal ideas, and you, you see them there in your text. I'm going to spend a little bit of time with each one. It's let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider, right? Let us consider how to stir up one another is the modifying verb. So those three things, you put those three together, that's press on. He says, here's what you do in a a positive sense. You press on in your faith. 
So let me, let me give you, I'm actually going to uh, put three more points up here. Let me give you a, a feel for what he means by pressing on. What does it mean to press on in our faith? Well, for one thing, it means heading toward Jesus. <laughs> Setting our face toward him. He's going to use language like that in chapter 12. Setting our face toward Jesus and heading toward him. Uh, that's this first one, this idea of, um, of let us draw near. Let us draw near to Jesus. Uh, and, and, and he doesn't say what we draw near to in context. He just says, let us draw near. But in the context of the book, he means draw near to God. He's not talking about drawing near to one another. That comes, comes in a bit. In, in that first verb, he's talking about let us draw near to God. He told us to do that back in chapter 4. He told us to do that in chapter 7. He tells us actually at the beginning of chapter 10, he used this same verb, draw near. Let us draw near to God, he says. And so that's who we're drawing near. We're, we're fixing our eyes on the Lord and we're heading uh, toward him. The rest of verse 22, the stuff that goes with that verb, these are all things that make it possible for us to draw near. Like the reason we can draw near to God through and in Jesus Christ is because of the other things he says in verse 22. And so we have true hearts, right? And Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah, says, you know, the heart is, that's Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things, right? The heart is deceitful. That's the heart that doesn't know Jesus. The heart that does know Jesus is a true heart. Right? So it's a, you, that, why do I have a true heart? It's because I've put my faith in Jesus Christ. Right? So we have that full assurance of faith. That was a theme we talked about earlier in the letter. Uh, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We are set free from, uh, from the guilt and the shame of our sin. Uh, our bodies are washed with pure water, he says in that, in that verse, verse 22. A lot of scholars see that as a a reference to baptism, not that baptism cleanses us, but that sprinkling of the body or that dunking of the body uh, is a symbol of the cleansing. Our bodies are in the process of being sanctified too, so we're not anti-flesh as, as Christians. We understand that God is, has created the body and he's sanctifying the body. So there's, there's lots of positive things he says there, but, and, and, and the idea is that all of those things make it possible for us now to draw near. So head toward Jesus. What does it mean to persevere in my faith, even through persecution, even through hardship? Well, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus, and I'm going to head toward him. So that's the first one. Uh, the second verb, I, I want to say it this way, hold on to your hope. So, so what does it mean to persevere in our faith? It means to hold fast. At verse 23, his words, hold fast the confession of our hope. Hold fast. I love that verb. I was digging around in this passage this week. Um, I, I discovered that the verb here, this hold fast, it's actually, it's, it's not the only way the verb would be used, but if a sailor was using this verb, this is the verb he would use to talk about holding his course. All right, so if you were a, if you were a, a tradesman and you're, a, what's the word I'm looking for? When you, you, they, they're trading, right? They're, they're, they're shipping. You're a merchant. You're bringing goods from one place to another on the Mediterranean Sea. And you want to make it in good time. You want to get to where the, the delivery needs to be made. You would, you would say to the crew, we're going to hold our course. We're going to go where we're supposed to go. That's the word the author uses here. Hold your course. Don't take a detour. And in fact, he then says that. He says, hold your course without wavering. That word means to bend or swerve, right? So this isn't some pleasure cruise where we're going to go over here and then over here and then we're going to stop for two days and fish. And No, we're going to hold our course without wavering. That's, that's the picture he, he creates here for us. 
Uh, and, and so that would be how a sailor would use that word. The author is using it about us, and so he's saying that's how we, we go after the hope that we have in the gospel because of Jesus Christ. We, we fix our eyes on it, and we hold on to it. We hold on to the hope that we have in him. And, and notice that we do it because of him, right? We're able to do it because God is faithful. And so our faith is rooted in his faithfulness. Do you see where he says that there at the end of verse 23? Uh, For he who promised is faithful. That's how we hold the course. That's how we keep heading for Jesus. So head for Jesus, hold your course. And then the third part of pressing on, so how do we persevere in the faith? The third part is that we help each other. So head for Jesus, hold on to your hope, and help each other. And that's those, probably some of the more better known verses, in, uh, especially in this part of Hebrews. Uh, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds or love and good works. Uh, what's he saying? He's saying, don't go it alone. <laughs> don't go it alone. Following Jesus is not meant to be a solitary effort. It's not a solo project. It's meant to be a team effort. It's something we do together. Uh, imagine, a, you know, it's football season. Imagine a quarterback Right? A really good quarterback trying to go out and win the game all by himself. And I mean that literally. He goes out and he lines up and, and it's him against 11 defenders. Right? No lineman, no center. He's going to hike the ball to himself. I don't even know if that's legal. I don't think it is. But, but that's what he do, does. He goes out there, one against 11. He doesn't stand a chance. Right? They're going to sack him. He could be Patrick Mahomes or Brady or whoever. He, he's going to get sacked every single time if it's one against 11 because football is inherently a team sport. Christianity is inherently a team effort. We see that over and over again. Yes, we answer, uh, we answer to the Lord ourselves one-on-one. That, that is true. Each one is, is responsible for his or her own response to the Lord. But then the New Testament is so clear. We then live this out in community. We help each other. We help each other. Verse 25 uh, says, some are in the habit. How many times have you heard a pastor use this verse to complain? Uh, some are in the habit of, of not meeting together. Some are in the habit of not meeting together, the author says. I read articles all the time these days about how uh, church attendance is plummeting in America. I don't know if anybody else sees these articles or if they just send them to pastors, but you know, church attendance is, is precipitously falling off, and oh no, what are we going to do? And I don't know, I'm not a demographer. Maybe, maybe that's true. I suppose it probably is true. But, but you know what? I don't get too discouraged by that because apparently this has always been a problem. Right? I go all the way back. He said, boy, if we could just be like the good old days when people would go to church. Well, I don't know. Look at Hebrews 1. <laughs> Look at Hebrews 10. Apparently, it was a problem then as well. Right? So, so it's not something that's only a struggle of the modern age. It, it's an endemic thing. It's, it's always been true. There's always forces trying to pull us apart from each other. Every culture, every time, every century, there's always forces trying to pull Christians apart. And the onus on us is to, 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 to resist those pressures and to get in there and help each other to help each other follow Jesus. And you, you know, why do we need to help each other? Well, because it's not easy. <laughs> you know, he says, uh, con- con- let us consider, let us meditate on how to um, instigate is really the idea. Though, you know, provoke, some translations say, stir up, provoke, instigate uh, one another to love and good works. Why those? Because those aren't easy to do. It's not easy to love other people, especially when they're not behaving in lovely ways. Right? It's not easy to do good works. It, you know, good works we want to do is easy, but not ones we don't want to do. Right? Service comes hard to a lot of people, especially when it's not service they don't want to do. And so that's why we have to instigate one another, stir one another up uh, to those things. So what does it look like to, to uh, respond with perseverance in our Christian life as we live it out? Well, we press on 
In a positive sense, we press on. We head toward Jesus. We hold on to the hope we have in him, and we help each other along the way. The next section in the text, right? So now we look at the next section, which is going to be verses 26 through 31. The next section, and and this is another one of those, it's actually another one of the warning passages. Those who have tracked with this series from the beginning know that there's a series of warnings that the book is kind of built around. This is another one. This is, I think it's warning number four here in verses 26 through 31. And and what you have here is it's it's the negative thing. So so when you respond to, the, to Jesus uh, in, with perseverance, you should press on and you should not turn away. So that's the warning here. Do not turn away. And that's my simplest summary of verses 26 through 31. Do not turn away from the Lord. Let's read it. We haven't heard these verses yet. So verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Adversaries of God is the idea. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? God takes it personally when people reject his gospel. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now that section, if you've been tracking with this series, that section might remind you of an earlier section. It's all the way back in chapter six, an earlier section in Hebrews. Uh, In chapter six, we looked at a passage that's a lot like this one. In fact, these two, a lot of times theologians will treat both of them at the same time because they're so similar. Uh, and and, and what, we, what we had to wrestle with back in chapter 6 was whether this author is teaching, whether the Bible is saying that it's possible for a genuinely born-again person, for a believer, to then lose his salvation. That, that was the question we wrestled with in, in that portion of, of Hebrews chapter 6. Is it possible for a believer to lose his salvation, to turn away from the Lord uh, in, that, in that way? Um, the answer we gave at that time is no. And I still stand by that answer. So that, that answer, no, it is not possible for a believer to turn away from the Lord in such a way that that believer becomes an unbeliever, right? So to take a spiritually regenerated person who is now born again, made alive to God and, and dead now to sin, um, that person goes back to being dead. That person stops uh, being saved. I do not think that's possible in, in, according to the scriptures. I don't, I don't think that that's possible. Here is what is possible. And this is how we talked about Hebrews chapter 6 several months ago now. What is possible is for somebody to look like a genuine believer, to look so much like a genuine believer that everyone else in the community is fooled by it. There's lots of examples of that in Scripture, actually. Judas is the, is the classic example. God, Jesus says, someone in this room is going to betray me. And they're all, they're, they didn't all go up. Oh, it's Judas. I knew it. No, they're all like, what? Really? One of us? No way. We're all perfect. We're all following you, Jesus. Judas is the classic example of what this author is talking about. Someone who is, is not, is, it looks just like all the other believers, but isn't one. And then you say, well, how do you know whether, that, whether someone is or not? Well, it's if he or she turns away. When that person turns away, if that person thus proves that he or she was never saved in the the first place. That is absolutely a possibility. And that is what this section is warning us against. So as you look through, as we look at verses 26 through 31, 
I'm going to read it through that lens because the author is saying, don't be one of those people. And so he's challenging us. And he's, the, the other thing he's assuming here is that none of us are sitting here saying, yeah, I'm a, you know, like, like, a, like a spy or something from some old Cold War movie where it's like, ha, 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 I've got them all fooled, but I'm really here to spread atheism. That's not the idea. It, it's that someone might think, you know, yeah, I went to that camp and I said that prayer and I'm all good. And then a cancer comes along and they're like, heck with this Jesus stuff. I got cancer. What's up with that? And they quit on him. That person was never saved in the first place. That, that's the idea uh, of what this is saying here. And so it goes back to this idea of G, where Jesus said, how do you tell if a tree is a good tree or a bad tree? You don't ask the tree. You look at its fruit. It's the same idea. It's much, it's much more complex theologically in Hebrews. Jesus is such a genius at boiling these things out for us, but he says, if you want to know what kind of a tree it is, you just look at the fruit. Is it good fruit or bad fruit? What he's describing here is bad fruit. And what he's challenging all of us to do is to look at ourselves and make sure, here in verses 26 to 31, he's saying, make sure you don't turn away. Make sure you don't turn away. And so you look at, let's, let's look at the, the verses. Um, so verse 26, he, he starts with this idea of sinning deliberately. If we go on sinning deliberately... So what's, what's he describing here? He's not talking about our uh, run-of-the-mill struggle with sin, right? I won't ask for a show of hands because it's foolish because we all should raise our hands. We all struggle with sin. We all have different ones we struggle with, but we're all continuing that battle. That's part of the Christian life. He's not talking about the, 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 the Romans 7, to give you a Pauline category. He's not talking about what Paul's talking about in Romans 7, where Paul talks about our regular struggle with sin. This guy, he's, he's talking here about someone who's rejecting Jesus. I reject what Jesus said. I reject his call to give up all of my sins, and I'm going to instead sin deliberately. I'm going to, I'm going to chase after that kind of a life. And so we're going to read this as a description of a person who's choosing to reject Jesus. And then he says in verse 26, he says, there's no such sacrifice. There's no sacrifice for sins for such a person. So what is he saying? He's saying so he just spent three and a half chapters, seven, eight, and nine, and ten, telling us that there's only one sacrifice. There's only one sacrifice now for sins, and it's Jesus. The Old Testament sacrifices are useless now. They serve their time, but they're useless now. There's only one sacrifice for sins. It's Jesus Christ. And so if somebody rejects Jesus Christ, verse 26, there's no... Or, it's verse 26. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why? Because they rejected the only option. Maybe a picture helps. Uh, imagine you're on a plane. It's a small plane. It's just you and the pilot, nobody else. And you're up at 10,000 feet or whatever. The pilot comes running out. You know, you're in the little cabin in the back. The pilot comes running into the back. He says, we're going down. The engines just quit. They can't be fixed. We're going down. Our only hope is these two parachutes. He says, two parachutes, two of us. We should be good. He hands you one. He grabs one. He puts it on himself. He says, see you at the bottom. And he jumps out the plane with his parachute parachute, rips the cord, off he goes. All right, so there you are. The plane's going down. You're holding your, your parachute. Uh, you, you could, uh, hopefully, you'll have the good sense to put that parachute on and follow him out. And, you know, kind of, I've never done this before, but, you know, that's better than crashing and, and off you go. But you don't have to do that, do you? You don't have to do that. You could say, I don't need no stinking parachute. Who does he think he is? I am so tired of that, that pilot. He's so bossy. He's been trying to tell me what to do ever since we took off. I'm not, I don't care about his parachute. I don't like parachutes anyway. And you kind of lean over to the door and you toss the parachute out. You can do that. But, but now you don't have any other options. There remains for you no other hope for salvation. You might feel good about yourself and your independence, but you just threw your only hope out the door. And I, that's how I understand, and I think we should understand verses 26 and 27. Jesus is the only sacrifice for sins. So if someone rejects Jesus, there's no other sacrifice for sin. There's, there's no 
other doorway. There's no secondary path. Uh, there's only one way to be saved. Now, I think a lot of times we get muddled on this passage. Somebody will say, does this mean, you know, somebody who leaves the church, you know, they're never, they can never come back? Sure, they can come back. I could give you lots of examples of people who came back, right? They could, but, but there's only one way to come back. <laughs> the only way to come back is to repent of our sins and to come back to Jesus. So I, I don't think this precludes that. Right? So if you know someone, maybe it's an adult child who really seemed to be walking with the Lord and then she walked away from him or he walked away from the Lord. You say, oh no, my adult child can never come back to Jesus. Sure she can. She just needs to do what the gospels say. She needs to repent of her sins and come back to Jesus. But she isn't going to find her way back to Jesus in any way that doesn't involve Jesus. That, that's what this text is telling us. It's, it, and so it's really zooming in on it's zooming in on the exclusivity of Christ. He is the one and only way, which fits very well with everything we've been learning all along. What happens, again, to go back to the text, what happens to someone who, who does that, who rejects Jesus, who rejects the only way? Well, it, it, this is that exclusivity part. It, all it leaves is a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that consumes God's enemies. That, that's the only option. All that's left is judgment. It's Jesus or judgment. Those are our only two, two, only two choices. And then the other verses in this paragraph, and if we were taking this series, if we wanted to go like four years in Hebrews instead of just one, um, you know, we could spend a lot of time with this. But as I look at verses 28 through 31, verses 28 through 31, it's all just the author bolstering the argument he just made in 26 and 27. So what he says in 28 through 31 is he takes us back to the law of Moses and he says there was a death penalty for violating the law of Moses. Not all of it, but, but the major components of the law of Moses, you would be stoned. You were supposed to be killed if you violated it. And so, for example, you could look these up. Deuteronomy 17 talks about how idolaters should be put to death. Someone who worships another god should be put to death. Deuteronomy 17. Leviticus 24 says the same thing for blasphemers. Heard any blasphemy lately? Maybe even committed it yourself? Uh, that, that should be the death penalty, according to Leviticus 24. So pretty severe in, in the law of Moses. And then what the author does is he makes what's called a uh, from, from lesser to greater argument. Uh, he basically says, if, if violating the law of Moses, which I have already told you is less than Jesus, if violating the law of Moses resulted in the death penalty, how much more, how much more severe should it be for someone who rejects Jesus Christ? Which he sums up with verse 31, right? He has a couple of quotes there. And then verse 31, it's a fearful thing a fearful thing, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so that's, it's, it's all pretty strong stuff, right? It's a warning, like I said, turn, turning away from Jesus, rejecting Jesus leads to hell. Uh, and so don't, don't do that, right? Do you see how he, he's not going to make any assumptions about us as listeners? Actually, he's going to. We'll get there in a minute. But, but there is this, this warning that hangs there. Each one is called. We looked, talked about this earlier in the letter. Each of us is called to examine ourselves, ex examine our, our own selves. He says, don't turn away. Don't turn away. Instead, press on. Keep pressing on in your faith. So that's, that's the responses, a positive and a negative, press on, don't turn away. Then we get to the, the resources. So in the last part, and it's verses uh, 32 through, through 39, he's going to give us two, two, two things that we need that are going to help us do, do this. So you say, okay, I want to persevere. I can tell that that's where I want. I want to go to heaven. I want to be with Jesus. I do see how valuable he is. I, I need to grow in that, but I do see it. How am I going to do it? How am I going to proceed with this? Well, that's the last eight verses. That's what they answer for us. Two resources. The first is to remember. Keep remembering. Keep reminding ourselves. That's what we're supposed to do. It's, it's, it's a tool for perseverance. Keep remembering how far the Lord has already brought you. Look at what he's done for you already, and then let that motivate you to keep going. That's, that's the idea. 
It's verses 32 through 34. Let me read them. He says, but recall the former days. There's our main verb. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he says, remember, recall the former days. Remember what the Lord's already done. Uh, He reminds us that we were enlightened. That's that's when we came to know Jesus. We came to understand the truth, to to know who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Because of that enlightenment, he reminds us, you've already endured. You see how he looks back? So I said before, he doesn't make any assumptions where we are, but he actually kind of does at this point. At this point in the letter, he, he makes a shift and he, he kind of pulls us in as readers. And he's, he's saying, but not you. You're not those who wander away. You're not those. He'll actually say that in the second to last verse. You're not the ones who give up. And so he's, he's pulling us in. And so he says, you remember how you already endured so much. You endured a, a, a hard struggle with sufferings, he says. Um, that illness that took your, your spouse or, or your child, that, that season of depression that you, you went through, that dark night of the soul that wasn't just a night. It was went on for weeks and months and maybe even years. Uh, that financial layoff, that, that struggle to pay your bills, that season when you just couldn't get all the ends to meet, that, that time when you were robbed. You see some of his, he, he gives his own concrete examples here. That time when you were robbed of your possessions, he says. Uh, that time when you were persecuted. And that really is the context here. He's talking about persecution that they were experiencing. They, those, the, the, the Romans and your neighbors, they, stuck, they took your stuff just because you believed in Jesus and they knew they could get away with it. You, you, but you didn't let go then, right? You didn't let go. You kept going. And you stood by other people too. Do you see where he then brings that in? He says, not only did you suffer, but, but you get that community thing I was telling you about, he says, right? And so you supported other people who were suffering. And so he, he says, you had compassion on the prisoners, probably prisoners for their faith, but maybe just prisoners in general. You had compassion on the prisoners. You became partners with the persecuted. You didn't just look the other way and pretend it wasn't happening. You did what you could to help them. And the, and the, and the message through this section, he's saying, you've already gotten through so much. You've gotten through so much already. Don't quit now. Hey, why would you quit now? Don't quit now. You've already gotten through so much. That, that's what he's saying. One of, uh, one of the most inspiring stories for me from church history comes from way back. It involves a man named Polycarp. And uh, Polycarp lived in uh, what, what, what the hundreds. It was the second century AD. And he was a church leader. He was the Bishop of Smyrna. So this is in modern day Turkey. So Polycarp was the Bishop of Smyrna in the 100s. And he's an interesting guy because he's actually one of the last men to die or men or women to die who knew the apostles because Polycarp was actually a student of the apostle John. So he knew John and John knew Jesus. So Polycarp was pretty well connected, you might say. But in uh, the year 160, so he's a pretty old man. He's well into his 80s. In 160 AD, Polycarp was arrested. And there were political reasons and stuff going on. Like he'd always been very open about his leadership in the Christian church. But a, a fresh season of persecution broke out in Rome. And the Romans arrested him. They arrested Polycarp, brought him up before the Roman proconsul for trial. And the charge was atheism. That was the charge, because as far as the Romans were concerned, if you wouldn't worship the Roman gods, you were an atheist. What do you mean you don't believe in the gods? You atheist? Ironic, right? 
So uh, Polycarp was, was brought up uh, before the proconsul on a charge of atheism. And the proconsul was kind of, he's a decent enough guy, actually, according to the historical record, because he was really trying to help Polycarp out. He was trying to get him off and out of respect for his age as much as anything. And so he kind of gave him an out. He said, listen, all you have to do is recant. Just recant. Just swear by the fortune of Caesar. Take the oath. What oath? The oath to Caesar in which they would declare that Caesar is Lord. Take the oath to Caesar declaring that Caesar is Lord and I shall release you, the Roman proconsul said. This is the part I love. Uh, Here was Polycarp's answer. It's kind of famous. Maybe you've heard this. He, He answered, 86 years I have served him, talking about Jesus. 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 86 years I have served him, never did he me, never did he me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? A few more words were exchanged, but soon after that, Polycarp was burned to death. He was martyred by the Romans because of his faith and commitment to Jesus. That's what we need to do. He said, I don't want to be burned at the stake. Me neither. But that's what we need to do. Especially what he models for us there. We need to remember how far he's already brought us. He's already done so much. He's already watched out for me. He's, he's done so much for me. He saved me from my sins. He got me through this and that. How could I quit now? And so that's resource number one. Remember, remember what God has already done. That helps us keep going. The other thing this text tells us to do, the other resource it gives us is, re- is resolve. We need to resolve. We need to resolve that we're going to persevere. There's, there's a decision piece to this. And that's what I see in the last section. It's uh, verses 35 through 39. It says, therefore, <clears throat> picking up in verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 37, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the decision part. We do have a will, right? We have a will. Human beings have the capacity to make decisions. And yes, God is sovereign, You know I believe that. God is sovereign. No one can subvert his will. But the Bible is also clear that you and I are responsible for the decisions we make. And if you you want proof of that, all you need is verse 35, right? The verse I just read. Do not throw away your confidence. That verse, uh, implicit, explicit in that verse, is that a decision needs to be made. We need to decide. Am I going to give up or am I going to keep going? I need to decide. That's what this last section, he says, do not, do not throw away your confidence. Uh, it reminds me of cross country. I guess it's that time of year and I, we have several families in our church, kind of cross country families. And it's familiar, even if you don't run yourself, there's, it's kind of a thing in our, our community. I think about that kind of distance running, right? Those longer races, three, three miles, 10 miles, whatever. Uh, the thing about that kind of distance running is that it really does take a lot of resolve, right? I mean, it's one thing to sprint 100, you know? It's, it's done in 10 seconds or 20 seconds for some of us, you know? I mean, it's, it's done quick, right? It, but, but running, distance running requires a lot of resolve. That runner has to decide at the outset that he or she is gonna finish, right? I'm gonna finish. Yeah, they said three miles and eight hills and it's raining out and it's down to 40, but I'm gonna finish, I may not win, I may not even place points today, but I'm going to finish this race. It's that kind of a mentality. 
And, and I think that's the attitude we see here. We're going to get to chapter 12. He's going to use this kind of a picture again. We, that's the attitude we need to have when we think about following Jesus Christ. Following Jesus is the best way to live. He's, he's underlined this for us already a lot of times in the letter, and he's not done yet. Following Jesus is the best way to live, but that does not mean it's the easy way to live. It's not. Sometimes it is, right? I don't mean to be all bleak and gloomy. Sometimes it's wonderful following Jesus and joy-filled and free from you know, the dumbest decisions we might want to have made and all that kind of thing. Sometimes it's easier to follow Jesus, but sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to live the way God calls us to live, which is why verse 36 says you have need of endurance, right? The author, he's, there's no Pollyanna here in Hebrews. He's like, yeah, you have need of endurance. I know you do, right? But, you know, and why do you need it? Well, because you want that reward. He talks about the reward in verse 35. Uh, you want the promise he talks about in verse 36. He's going to say more about both of these in coming chapters. You want the reward. You want the promise. So you need endurance. Verses 37, 38, it's another quote. It's a quote from Habakkuk this time. You could go look it up. It's Habakkuk chapter 2. And the point of the quote is to say, look at what he says. It's, it's echoes of the warning. He says, God is pleased with those who persevere, and he's not pleased with those who, who quit. He's not pleased with those who quit. And so, but then verse 39, again, look at what he does. I love how the author, he warns us, but at the same time, he keeps pulling us back into faith. He, he, he ends on a high note in verse 39. He says, but that's not us. Not us, not me, not you, he says. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have, we have faith and we're saved. And so he's got all these warnings and then he says, but you, and I, and I just, you see that resolution, but you and me, we're going to press on. We're not going to give up. We're going to keep persevering in our faith in Jesus Christ.